Welcome to Diner Talks with James. Slide into the booth and let's have conversations we never want to end with friends we never want to leave over food we probably shouldn't be eating. My friends, what is going on? Welcome to another episode of Diner Talks with James. I'm James, and I'm super pumped to be here with you today, y'all. What are you going to be having? You want a malted shake? What do you want? You want something? You want like a classic eggs and bacon? What are we doing today over here, my friends? You let me know. Just slide into the booth, and let's have a good time. I'm really excited for today's episode. Y'all, we're here today with the one and only Laura Gassner Odding, a.k.a. L-G-O. She is the author of the Washington Post best-selling book, Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life. She also wrote another awesome book called Mission Driven. She helps people get unstuck and achieve extraordinary results. She served on Hillary Clinton's National Finance Committee. Then she was asked to do a TEDx talk. And then her whole life changed. She became a professional speaker. But before that, she served as a presidential appointee in Bill Clinton's White House, where she helped shape AmeriCorps. She's worked for big companies you've heard of. She's worked for startups that you've heard of. Her passion for nonprofit and philanthropic work truly speaks for itself. Through her commitment to give back, she helped build a local Montessori school, co-founded a women's philanthropic initiative, advised the startup National Women's PAC, grew a citizen leadership development program, and completed three charity-inspired marathons. Not three, think I'll go run a marathon, three charity-inspired marathon. She lives in Boston, which is maybe the only unfortunate piece about her, but we'll talk about that in a minute. She has two teenage sons and a hysterical and adorable Doberman Pinscher. You should follow her on Instagram, Hey LGO, to get your daily dose of your daily Dober. Let's bring her out right now, LGO. Hello, James. It is so good to be here. What is up, my friend? My God, that was a long introduction. I'm hungry. What's your favorite? What's your favorite <laughs> diner meal? I got to know this. Favorite diner meal. Depends on what time of day we're going. If we're going late at night, often I'm a grilled cheese with bacon and French fries. Mm. Uh, But I also have been known to crush a stack of pancakes. All right. All right. See, I go breakfast all day long in a diner. I just, I got, I got to do the breakfast and it's got to be like the hungry man special where they give you like a little bit of everything. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like commitment get, issues to breakfast, I guess. I don't know. Get but. the sausage <laughs> and the bacon, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you want the eggs? Yes. Do you want the pancakes? Yes. Do you want the French toast? Yes. The answer mm-hmm. here's the theme. Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. I want it all. <laughs> I'm I limitless. Be, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be that person at the table that everybody else has to rearrange their plates because I'm having more plates delivered. Yes. And you know, a friend of mine, you mentioned that I, I run three marathons. I'm actually running my fourth on Monday, a week from today. And I have a friend that I run with. And the runs that we do, we end up running, you know, you run through like four cities when you're running a 20 mile training run, but we always end at this one particular diner. And she, the first time ordered a toasted blueberry muffin. So they cut the muffin in half, Mm, they toast mm -hmm. it and then they butter it. And I got to tell you, it's a revelation. I just had no idea that this didn't even existed in the world. And it is, it's changed my life. 
It's it is a pro tip that diners oh, yeah. have figured out. Yeah, I went to. Uh, I now live in the Midwest, born and raised in New York, but I now live in the Midwest. So Perkins are really big out here, and Perkins are known for their baked goods. And mm. so I asked them, "Can you toast the muffin?" And you would have think I asked this woman for like a lobster bisque and in the middle of Minnesota. Like a chicken um, Saint-Marcan, please. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Doc L'Orange. Um, yeah, she was like, I don't understand. I literally had to explain it to her. And she, when she brought it out to me, she's like, all of the chefs are now toasting muffins and eating them and they just want to say thank you. So, Have you ever had a toasted glazed donut? Have I ever had? Yes, I have. Because that's I, the bomb. Yeah. Right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. It's a messy like process. A bagel. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, so is diabetes, right? Which is the next step in the process. <laughs> but yeah, you toast it like a bagel, you slather some butter on, you stick it on the griddle, and then you just mm-hmm. like, it's like a spoon. It's just like, it's just syrup. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. Anyway, re- I'm sure all the people listening to this podcast are interested in like entrepreneurship and coaching and leadership tips are like, what the hell are they talking about? <laughs> well, it's funny because uh, you jumped the gun and read ahead. Well done. Great student. Um, but the first question I always ask somebody is, what do you normally order at a diner? Oh. And so here we go. You jumped. Here we it. go. Here we I go. Love it. So you're, doing, you're, you're actually right on track. Uh, I've always wanted to be the star student. Unfortunately, I was mostly drunk and stoned in high school and college. So I never was the star student. So I can start. Yeah. No, it's perfect. It's perfect. It's never too late, they say. It's never, never too late. Never too late. Yeah. <laughs> now, are you born and raised in the Northeast? Where, where is, where is, where'd you grow up? I was born in New York City, James. Mm, I've heard of it. I've heard of and it. I and was, I was raised in Miami, Florida. Oh, okay. Great. Yeah. It took a hard left there. Yeah. 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 So I can punch <laughs> you in the face in two languages, basically, is what yeah. that says. That's, that's what I'm picking up. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so born and raised in Miami. How old were you when you moved down to Miami? So um, my dad was, uh, my dad is a retired uh, surgeon. And when, uh, after I was born, he joined the military because that's what everybody had to do at the time. It was during the Vietnam era. And he was given the option either to move to Texas or to move to Florida because he was in the Air Force and he was uh, the sur- he was being uh, uh, brought into the service as one of the surgeons that were going to work on the astronaut training program. So he said, how about Florida? So we moved to Cape Canaveral and I spent the first couple of years of my life living on Cape Canaveral. And then uh, about two years into his service, he was supposed to serve for four years. They were like, well, good news. The war's over. So you can go if you want, or uh, we'll send you to our next base in Oklahoma. And he was like, so we're Jewish. And I don't know if there are any Jews in Oklahoma. And my mom was like, no fucking way. <laughs> so he put on his uniform. He got in his car. He drove two hours south to Miami. He didn't have a suit, but he put on mm-hmm. his uniform and he interviewed uh, with some other surgeons and he became part of a surgical practice. And that's how we ended up in Miami. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Random. How- you know, we spent all this time in yeah. our lives making like plans, like what am I going to do and how is it going to be? And then like life throws you a monkey wrench and you're like, okay, I guess I'll go that way now. You're like, okay, there's no Jews in Oklahoma, so I got to make another choice. There's probably a lot of Jews in Oklahoma, but you know, like when you spent your entire life in like a 10 square block radius in Brooklyn, and then you end up at Cape Canaveral in Florida, you're like, I don't think there's any Jews anywhere else. (laughs) Turns out there's Jews everywhere, but yeah. Turns out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You just would have to go, you would have to go fishing for them though. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. So that is really special what what a career that your that your father uh, stacked up now are you are you a, are you a, do you have any siblings are you an only child i have well i have 
one older sister who's 16 months older than I am, but I also have a cousin who moved into our house uh, when she was in 10th grade. So she's four years older than I am. So I kind of have like two sisters, even yeah. though one's a cousin. Okay. Incredible. Incredible. Now, growing up with a father who is actually successful and stereotypically successful, right? When we think about it, it's like, well, go be a doctor, right? Yeah. Um, so, a nice uh, Jewish doctor. A nice Jewish doctor. <laughs> right. that. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so sometimes it puts a lot of pressure on individuals. Did you feel any pressure of what success was supposed to look like for you? Is that something that was ever passed on to you? Or was that <laughs> were you kind of always uh, like, eh, whatever, we're at Cape Canaveral, we're working with astronauts? I, you know, who cares? Uh, right. Like you talked about being drunk and high in high school and stuff. Like yeah. That. There wasn't a lot of, Oh, whatever. In my childhood, definitely mm -hmm. not. Um, I mean, you know, my book limitless is basically based on the whole premise that at some point when you're 15, 16, 17 years old, somebody's like, Hey James, pick a major, pick a college, pick a trade, pick a path. And you go, okay. And then you mm -hmm. like set your entire life plan. And the thing is, do you know what you don't have when you're 15, 16, 17 years old? You life don't experience. have a, a life experience, <laughs> but you actually, you don't have a frontal lobe. Mm. Like literally, you do, like the part of your brain that helps you dictate good, solid, logical decisions is not developed in your brain. Like we are asked to make the most important decisions of our lives when we literally do not have the capacity to make a good one. So what do we do? We look around and we're like, well, this is what my mom thinks is success. And this is what my dad thinks is success. And this is what's working for my older sister. Or this is what my teachers are saying. Or this is what, you know, back then it was like Susan Day on LA Law. She seems successful. I'll be a lawyer, <laughs> right? Hey, kids, that's your version of saying Kim Kardashian seems successful. I'll make a sex tape, right? Like it's like there's, right. we have these images of what success looks like that come from the outside world. And we, we have to make decisions to do something with them before we know ourselves, like forget life experience, forget world experience. Like we don't even know ourselves at that point. Mm -hmm. And so we make these decisions and we go off to like fill everybody else's check boxes on everybody else's list of what success is going to look like. And then we look around one day and we're like, okay, so I'm successful, quote unquote, as you said, like typically stereotypically successful, but I'm not happy. Yeah. So what's wrong? There must be something wrong with me. It turns out there's not anything wrong with us. There's just something wrong with the definition of success that was handed to us by somebody else because we never took the time to stop and say, is that a definition of success, my definition of success? And it mm -hmm. turns out most of the time it's not. Yeah. Ain't that the truth, y'all? We're coming in with the truth bombs hot and heavy first here. Uh, and that is uh, such a brilliant point because you're right. We don't have that frontal lobe. And so we're over here just, you know, looking at what other prescriptions of success other people have been handed. And so here we go. I guess I'll follow in the footsteps over here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I had no idea what, I mean, I wanted to be a Marine biologist, right? So I got a bachelor of science in Marine biology. There's not one fish around me right now. <laughs> LGO. Okay. I use my degree to impress dates at aquariums. All right. Um, <laughs> so the thing is, is that, but, uh, but it's fascinating though, because I wonder I wonder when we think about that, I think there are parts of our childhood where we experience pure joy, where we do things that truly make us uh, just make us happy, even though it's happiest in its sim is most simplistic form. And so what I've also noticed, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, is that some people, when they're stuck later in life, need to go back to, well, what was that thing 
that made me, that brought me joy. You know, like I was told not to be an artist and I'm supposed to be, uh, so I, I was told not to be an artist. And so I went and had and got my business administration degree or something like that. Um, but yet there's a nugget in what brought you joy earlier. So though we haven't exactly formed it, we still know what happiness is. But we shove that aside because of what we believe society or and or parents or guardians are telling us to do. But do you believe that, like, kind of at that later age, that it, sometimes it's healthy to go back to that thing of like, well, what made me smile when I wasn't even thinking about it when I was younger? You know, I've thought a lot about that, actually, because it's such a good question. You know, I think there's there are a lot of people who are like, you know what I love to do is I love drawing. I love being an artist. I love dancing. I love music. And they're usually creative pursuits mm -hmm. um, w where people have said things like, well, you can't make money at that. So you might as well do something else. And that'll just be your hobby. Right. Yeah. So we learn really early on that the things that cause us joy that are creative and are fun are less important and are less valuable than the things that earn us money. Mm -hmm. So I spent some time thinking about that because I was like, well, I don't know, maybe we should all like go find our inner child again and like go do those things. But the truth is, I, I, I've also like, I just turned 50 and I'm, I'm kind of a princess. And like, if I spend my time like dancing and drawing and doing needlepoint and things that cause me joy as a child, that's not going to get me 800 thread count sheets at the Four Seasons, right? So like, sure. I, sure. right, I, think, I think it's a matter of thinking about like, what do you really want your life to look like? So we spend a lot of time thinking like, what do I want my career to look like? And what do I want, um, you know, if I make bigger, better, faster, more, like more money, the bigger title, the bigger, you know, job, the corner office, all that, I'll finally be happy. And I think, you know, I had a, I had a, a, a business coach. Uh, I had breakfast. I had breakfast with him at a diner, actually. And he <laughs> said, look, what do you want your life to look like in five years? Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, I want to have a successful business and a successful family. And I want to, and he's like, yeah, but what does that mean? Like, what does success mean? Do you, how, do you, how many vacations do you want to go on? And when you go on those vacations, do you want to fly first class? Or you want to, you know, drive your car? Do you want to stay at the Four Seasons? Or do you want to like stay at the Ramada Inn? No shade to the Ramada Inn. But, you know, like what, what do you want it to look like? Do you want to be somebody who's philanthropic, who can give money to causes and candidates that you care about? Are you somebody who, like, do you value having dinner every night with your family? Or do you want to be on the road all the time? Like, what do you, like really nitty gritty what would make you feel happy in your life? Mm. And I, I had a really hard time thinking about it because I was so busy my whole life trying to go to like the traditional definitions of success that for me to say things like, yeah, actually, I love traveling and I want to travel a ton, but I also want to make enough money so that when I travel, I can come home to a house that somebody else cleans for me because I don't want to have to come home at the end of the day on a Saturday Sunday and be super stressed and have to like clean my toilet and do all that stuff. Like I want to own it. Like I'm a princess at this point yeah. in my life, but I also don't want to maximize every dollar I can from my work. I want to have the flexibility to say no to certain clients so that I can be home and see my kids, you mm -hmm. know, at, at six o'clock and have dinner with them. And that changed like every seven to 10 years or so that what that equation looked like kind of changed. And it may just be that I wasn't like a super creative kid that like my thought of, well, what caused me joy as a child wasn't something that seemed like. I don't know, like a fantasy dream world. I think if you're somebody who was creative, you might have much more of like a prison cell around you with mm -hmm. what you're doing. But I, I was, um, I, I wasn't a like 
happy-go-lucky, loose, creative kid. I was the kid who was like watching the news every night and like being righteously indignant about like the Iranian hostage crisis situation <laughs> and things like that. I mean, I, I just, I'm a weirdo. So like, <laughs> Sounds yeah, like you made what, a lot of friends. <laughs> well, I mean, what caused but, uh, me, yeah. joy, like, like what brought me joy then was yeah. being super active about stuff that I saw as wrong in the world and wanted to make right. Mm -hmm. So this business coach said something to me, which was really smart. Like first he asked me, like, how do you pay yourself? And I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, I like, I bring money in for my clients and I pay my team of staff members and contractors. And then I, you know, put some money into like upgrading our database and our website and stuff like that. And I put a little money away for a rainy day. And then I guess I pay myself whatever's left over. And he was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I think his exact words were stop thinking like such a girl, which, you know, what? Okay. But he wasn't wrong. I was definitely like apologizing for being there. Like a lot of female entrepreneurs do. Mm. And he said, you need to figure out what you want your life to look like in five years. How many times do you want to go on vacation? What kind of car do you want to drive? What do you want? You know, do you want to clean your house? Do you want someone else to clean your house? What do you want your life to look like? Figure out what that life costs and then build a business that throws off that amount of money. And it was like, basically the polar opposite of what I'd been doing up until that point. And it was a sea change moment for me mm. because I, 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 it made me realize that I wasn't just like going into the office every day to do the work and take whatever's left over. I was actually building towards something and that something was only defined by me. So I don't know. I mean, like, look, you're, you're doing the same kind of work. You're an entrepreneur. You're like out there on your own. How do you pay yourself? Like, how did you like, do you have a, a logic around how you do it? I'm just wildly rich. So, you know, everything's <laughs> fine. You know, it's, oh, God, no. Oh, I just got hit in the face with money. Um, You're like yeah, 800 no. thread counts. Like 1,500 thread counts, 1500. please. Plebeian. <laughs> um, I know. I'm a commoner. It's true. It's terrible. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. How do I, uh, how do I behave myself? So my, uh, my wife is also a professional speaker. That's what, is, that's what we both do. Um, and she talks to women about why women need women. Um, and, and I talk about authenticity and vulnerability and leadership. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so <clears throat> uh, we, we recently, uh, upon getting married, decided to merge our two LLCs into one and we have our own business. Um, and so I would say that we are approaching things somewhat similarly to the way that you currently are as well, or the way that, you know, when you, when you spoke with your business coach at that time, mm -hmm. um, where it's kind of like, you know, we take care of our employees and contractors and, and let's make sure that they're fed and, and totally fine. Um, and then the next move is, uh, the next move is to like, make sure that we're good with daycare and, and some of those other expenses. And then, uh, and then, you know, whatever money we have left over, we try to do fun things. Um, but I would also say that, you know, we've set a goal to go and live somewhere else on this earth for a month every other year. Um, and so that's something that we build towards. And that's something that yeah. we're like, well, that's unacceptable if we can't do that. So we need to build that in. And so I think that's something that we do fairly well, where we kind of build in something that that, that matters to us. Um, but yeah, I don't necessarily know if we've taken that approach of like, uh, find the number that you need to live the life you want to live. And then, uh, and then just adapt your business to actually get there. Well, um, it was a truly fascinating exercise because yeah. at the time he asked me, I had 15 staff members and we were growing at like a few staff members a year. And it was like, we just kept doing more. It was like more clients. I was, I was running an executive search company. So it was more clients, more searches, um, more travel, more staff. And one day I looked at my numbers and I was like, okay, well, we're making more money, but we're not making 
so much more money that it's worth the increase in stress that mm -hmm. comes with it, right? Because at the end of the day, if you have five staff members, you have five headaches if things go wrong. If you have 15 staff members, you have 15 headaches if things go wrong. If you have 40 staff members, it's 40 headaches. But it's it am are you making enough money to make the 15 headaches worth more than the five? And mm -hmm. on top of that, are you actually making more profit, right? Because you have to have a larger business, you have to have more, you know, um, overhead, you have to have like more levels, you have to have like more stuff, more support going on. And so it made me stop and think like, well, okay, what do I want to take home? And what kind of what size of business, how many team members is actually the right size to throw off that amount of money and and be worth it for what I'm doing. And it, it was funny because it sort of happened at the same time as we had a, a retreat and we brought all, all we, it was, the, the firm was fully virtual. We were actually all remote before it was like COVID cool to be remote. So <laughs> we were fully virtual. From, yeah, right. We were, I mean, I started the company in, in 2002 and it, mm -hmm. we, we never had office spaces. So we had, we had uh, people all over the, literally all over the world. Yeah. And we brought everybody together once a year for a retreat. And we had this one woman who was from Harvard Business School. Uh, she facilitated the retreat and she went around at the very beginning of the, of, of, of the first day. And she's like, okay, hi, I want everyone to go around and tell us what do you think is the ideal number of staff for this company? And people were like, 15, 20, 50, four. They were pulling numbers out of their ass. And she came to me last and I was like, this is a, this is a really stupid question. Like, it, like, what kind of business do we want to build? Do what, what kind of impact do we want to make in the world? What kind of lifestyle do we want to have? And if you tell me that, I'll tell you how many people we need because we could be far more profitable with five people mm -hmm. or 60 people than we are with 20. But with 20, we're less profitable, but we all have more flexibility in our lives, right? So like, what are we maximizing for? Are we maximizing for impact? Are we maximizing for profit? Are we maximizing for personal freedom and flexibility? Because I'll give you two of the three, but we have to make decisions based on something. And making yeah. a decision based on like how much business comes in the door and let's staff for that actually might build a business that's making less money and is keeping us busier than what we really want to do. So that that whole the whole exercise of figuring out what kind of life you want. And I'm not saying like how much money do you want to, the bank, want to have in the bank, but I'm saying like how often do you want to hang out with your kids? How mm -hmm. many, like do you want to take a month and live somewhere else every year? Or you want to take two months to live somewhere else every year? Like, and when you do that, where are you living, right? So like th that exercise, I felt like for the very first time pulled me away from filling in everybody else's definition of success and actually stopping and saying, well, what do, what do I want? What does my husband want? What do we want as a family? How do we want to do this? And it, it really opened up some pretty good conversations in our house, in my business. And it really, mm -hmm. like, it, it radically changed how we thought about what we were building and how we were building it. And as a result, actually, the business grew, like, 100% every year for, like, the next five years. That's incredible. It's Got crazy. that hockey stick. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, <clears throat> that's incredible. You know, it's interesting, Laura. I, my wife and I had a, have a have had a conversation recently because we set a uh, we set a, a goal for our business of, a, of an income goal this year, mm -hmm. um, and we hit it with contracted uh, speeches by the beginning of August, which nice. was really exciting. And so we then had this really beautiful problem to have, which is so what now? Do we smash the gas and be like, let's see how far we can blow the, you know, the wheels off of this goal and just, you know, like, and hit it. Um, or do we like, no, 
we should be happy with the amount that we have hit and realize that that's an amount that we had already decided that we could live a really great life with. And so instead, you know, let's make sure we take a vacation or even just not just like block our calendar or like, what if we just didn't go anywhere or didn't do anything? Obviously we'd probably still do some work, but maybe we're not on the road. Right. And maybe it's a time where we're not putting our nine month old on a plane. Right. <clears throat> um, or something like that. But there's a fascinating balance, especially, um, I don't necessarily know if it's a younger thing or an older thing. I don't know if it changes in life. I think it's more just an individual personality, but like, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that is like, we're literally asking ourselves, like, what is enough? Yeah. Well, right? what did you do? I want to know. What'd you do? I've uh, tiptoed around it and I've come up with excuses to like, I was like, well, we should probably make more. Um, right. Cause like she's putting on a, uh, a woman's conference and I'm like, well, you know, ho- hotel overhead, you know, we should probably get some. And like, cause there's part of me that's like, if we got the time, then let's go. Because we also, we love what we do, which is, which is fortunate. Yeah. Um, and tomorrow is not promised. Correct. But tomorrow's not promised, but at the same time, tomorrow's also not promised with a beautiful day that I can have with our son, right? right. And so that's where it's this fascinating balance. So I'm curious, like- Or you could say, like, our son's nine months old right now, and he knows us and he loves us, but it's going to be sure as hell a whole lot more fun taking off that beautiful day when he's three. So mm-hmm. I'd rather bank some of it now and really spend time with him when he's older. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is a fascinating idea that's that's clearly rattled around in my head. And I don't, I mean, who knows what the right thing is to do, but, uh, but you know, we're going to make the decision for us, but I think the concept of what is enough in contrast Mm -hmm. to, uh, I'm not saying it's in in, in complete contrast to the concept of limitless, but I would be curious to hear your thoughts on that. Like when, you know, the clients that you have the opportunity to work with, or even just thinking in your own life, how do you determine what enough is? Well, just to back up a second to be clear, Limitless is not about getting everything all the time, more, more, more. Actually, there's one of the ideas behind Limitless is that your definition of success may not be more, more, more. Your definition mm-hmm. of success may be this is enough. This is okay. Um, uh, so there, there are there are four, like the book, the book talks about the idea of consonants, which is not success for success's sake, not success looking for happiness, because that's all sort of ephemeral and fleeting. But this idea of consonants where you're in alignment, when you're in flow, like you said, you're doing the work you love. And it's made up of four parts. It's made up of calling, connection, contribution, and control. So calling is this gravitational force, this thing that gets you out of bed in the morning, a leader who inspires you, the business you want to build, a family you want to nurture, right? The cause that you want to that you want to serve, like something that is exciting to you. Connection is can you see a direct connection between your daily work and that calling, right? Do you see that your work actually matters? Contribution is how does this work contribute to your life? Does it allow you to manifest your values on a daily basis? Does it pay you enough to give you the life that you want? Does it give you the flexibility, give you the lifestyle that you're looking for? Does it contribute to you living the kind of life you want? And then the last piece is control. How much do you personally control? How much agency do you have about how much that work connects to your calling and how much it contributes to your life? So the contribution piece is interesting because we had um, we had over 5,000 people take an online quiz um, that, that we put up. And what we have found, 
su surprisingly, um, to all the companies that are trying to throw more money at people to keep them happy, is that in fact, only 55% of the, the, the leading age group that's in the great resignation right now, the 30 to 45 year olds, mm -hmm. only 55% of them want more contribution out of their work, but 62 to 65% of them want more inspiration, right? They want more calling. They want to know their work matters. They want that connection. They want to feel like they have some control. So it's interesting that this question of how much is enough, a lot of us are like, actually, I've already got enough, right? Mm -hmm. I've got enough, or I know what that number is and I can go for it. But this external pressure of bigger, better, faster, more, drive the right house, drive, you know, dri drive the right car, park it in the right house, wear exactly the right clothes by exactly the right designers, send your kids to the right dance classes and music classes and private schools and all those things. There are a lot of people who read Limitless and said, you know, what I actually realized is, I've got enough right now. I had one guy who read the book and he he sent me a message on Instagram and he's like, you know, I read your book and I finally quit my corporate job. My wife and I bought a farmhouse and we've always wanted to grow all of our own food and make our own energy. So we did. Awesome. awesome right. Awesome. Like, yeah. that's great. So like if your calling is that you want to, you know, cure cancer. Great. That's great. Go for it. If your calling is that you want to make enough money so that you can make decisions, financial decisions that you never got to make growing up and your kids can have more flexibility than you had growing up because you were in debt. That's awesome, too. But if your calling is that you want to buy a Maserati in a beach house, that's cool, too. Right. So like everybody's number of how much is enough is going to be just completely different. So I don't know, like I, for me, how much is enough is that I um, don't have to look at the number in my bank account before I make decisions about things that cause me joy. Mm -hmm. That's it. Sometimes yeah. the things that cause me joy are going to a taco truck with my kids. And sometimes the things that cause me joy are, you know, taking a first class flight and staying at four star hotels. Everybody's different and every part of your life is different. So I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I could answer that. Like, can you answer that? I'm not sure I can. I mean, I think in a way you did, right? In a way you did answer it because it, it truly is different for everybody. And ultimately what it comes down as to is, is you're the only person who has to fall asleep to the sound of your own heartbeat. Yes. And so you are the only person who knows what is enough and yes. who knows what external pressures you are allowing to redefine what your definition of success is, what your definition of happiness is, what your definition of enough is. Um, and so I mean, what you said is beautiful for that reason. Uh, and I love, I love your definition of success. One of my definitions of success is to be able to pay people to do the things I don't want to do. So I have more time to do the things I want to do. Right. You talk right. about getting the house clean, talk about getting the lawn mode, talk about what, whatever it is. Right. Um, and so like, that's, that's one of my definitions of success. Doesn't have to be somebody else's, but that's one of mine. Um, and so, cause there's some people that are like, well, I always want to mow my lawn. I want to know what's done right. That's amazing. That makes awesome. Do I it. I don't give a shit about it. Um, right. right. I got a buddy who sends me a picture of his lawn and he's, he's sending like protractors and everything. I'm like, good for you, bud. Um, amazing. Right? Just, just tell me what I'm supposed to put fertilizer down. Um, yeah. and <laughs> amazing. amazing. I mean, I was talking to someone today and, 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 and she was telling me how like the thing that she hates most in the world is going to the grocery store. She just hates it with like every fiber in her being. And like, I like to like feel my produce, you know, <laughs> like I like to get I've all heard up that in about there. You. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I like the cantaloupes, baby. So, you know, I, um, like for me, if I like set up like an Instacart or somebody does the grocery shopping for me and like, I'm there, like uh, an important ingredient is missing. Then all of a sudden I have like 78% of the meal that I want to cook. And then 
what am I going to do? Right. So like, mm-hmm. I just, I like a lot of control. That's just how I operate. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I think everybody is different. And I think the other thing that's important, James, is it's also different at different ages and different life stages. So like what mattered to me, you know, you mentioned that I, I worked in the Clinton white house. I dropped out of law school to join the Clinton white house. And I, at that time, I didn't need any contribution. I wasn't making, I was making like all the ramen soup and idealism you can eat, right? Like they weren't paying me anything, but I had calling out the wazoo. I was inspired. I was so inspired by this guy who talked about exchanging community service for college tuition. I was like, yes, that makes so much sense. I had no connection. I was getting the coffee for the guy who got the coffee for the guy who got the coffee. I mean, it was like (laughs) zero. And I had no control, like, are they going to send me to Little Rock one day or New York City the next day, Des Moines, mm-hmm. Idaho or Iowa? Like, I, who knows? But it didn't matter. That's all I needed at the time. Now, as I mentioned, I'm 50. I've got, you know, two teenage kids. One's in college in Houston. And my speaker page on my website now is like lower charge between twenty dollars and $25,000 for a speech. Um, plus, you know, airfare, blah, blah, blah. And then there's questions, typical questions. Does she do discounts? And it's like, yes, Laura has lots of charities that are important to her. So if it is one that makes sense for her, she'd be happy to talk to you about discounts. What if my event's in Houston, right? My kid's at Rice in Houston. And I said, I think, I don't remember the exact wording, but it says something like, if you've got airfare and money for dinner for two at a taco truck, I'm your girl, right? Like that's, Mm -hmm. that matters to me now. So I would forego my fee I have an opportunity to go to Houston and go have dinner with my son. So I think at every age and at every life stage, and I think those life stages probably are like every seven to 10 years, they change, right? Mm -hmm. Like think about who you were seven years ago, different than now. Now you have a nine month old, but in seven years, that nine month old is going to be what in third, second grade, third grade, taking the bus to school. Like your time is going to be very different than it is now. So what you do and what you need out of your work and how that that piece of your life dovetails with the rest of your life will be different and you'll want different things. But we have this one size, you know, monolithic lean in type of idea that it's like, you got to like rise and grind and hustle and all that stuff. And it's bullshit, you know, like it's there's like, why is there one size fits all definitions of success? I, I, I reject that outright. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, yes. So I'm wondering, taking it back to your childhood, taking it back yeah. to your childhood, uh, you know, I, I have to bring it back up because I want I want to hear a little bit more about it, which is uh, this idea that you were, you know, that you were drunk and high in high school. Yeah. And and so, you know, at the same time, you you had very strong and powerful beliefs. You know, like you said, you know, you're you're watching the news, you're you're yeah. learning about what's going on in Iran, you're you know, yelling fuck the patriarchy before it was on t-shirts, right? Um, and so and all that kind of stuff. And and so uh, there was a part of you that is amazing how it's kind of carried in through a lot of your life. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, when you were that age. What what mattered to you? What did you think you were going to be doing? What was the goal at that age? Well, I graduated from a high school thinking that I would be the first female Democratic senator from the great state of Florida. That was the plan. Great. So I applied for college, went to University of Texas, mostly because there were a lot of cute boys playing Frisbee without shirts on the day that we visited. Sounds about That's right. 
pretty much why I chose it. Um, yeah. And, um, and, you know, it was fine. It was great. Um, I graduated early from, uh, from college. Uh, so I graduated in the December class. So three and a half years. And then I went right into law school, which started in January and the January class at university of Florida, where I went, cause like, I wasn't going to get into Harvard. So I was like, I'm going to want to run for office in Florida. I should go to the best law school in Florida. So I picked university of Florida mm-hmm. and the way that it works is you do the fall semester in the spring and then you do the spring semester in the summer. So you're caught up to the next fall class. So I graduated from college on like December 17th and started law school on January 3rd. And I was, you know, 20 years old at the time. Um, and I was, that's what I was going to do. I was like, I was all in, I was going to run for office. I was going to solve all the problems. I was mm-hmm. going to, you know, I was going to help. I was going to fix things. And then I spent the first few weeks in law school and I was that kid. I was the one that got called on the very first day. Like I, I I'm a lot older than you, but like the paper chase where yep. they call on the student and they just ask question after question, after question, after question um, in, in, in that, you know, the, the Socratic method where they just like beat the student down. And I went like, I don't know, 20 minutes or so answering questions until finally I didn't have any more knowledge and that I basically started crying. I mean, I was like the teacher just tore me apart made an example out of me. And I looked around at the rest of the students in the class and I did not see one friendly face. I did not see one supportive Mm. person. And when I went to the library the next week to um, take out a book, to read about a case that was going to be on the test coming up, I found the case was ripped out of the book. And I remember thinking like, this is University of Florida. Like, like, this isn't like, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, like who, like what's going on here? And I was just so horrified. And like, I just, I didn't want to be like the professors. Like I felt like they were inhumane. I didn't Mm -hmm. respect my fellow students who were just, they placed competition above knowledge. And I just like, I had this idea sort of where it was going and where it was going wasn't anywhere I wanted to be. So I did the thing that most people do when they're in a pretty bad situation in life. I dated uh, a really horrible person, <laughs> like a total Poor, douchebag, like a little, horrible, get horrible the gas dude. on the fire. Let's go. I mean, so he was in my law school class and mm-hmm. I used to ride my bike to campus and, um, <laughs> it's a hot bike ride in Gainesville. So yeah, I used to ride my bike to campus and on that particular day it was raining. And so he said, well, I'll give you a ride home from class. We'll just put your bike in the back of my IROC Z which will tell you everything you need to know about this guy. (laughs) Right. Like the Jeff Leppard going and, you know, there we we were car in the back. He's like, but on the way, I want to stop at this guy's campaign office. He's running for president. I want to pick up some literature. Kids listening. This is how you used to do it before the internet, right? You'd have to like stop at a physical office and you'd have to like actually get paper that had a candidate's campaign stances on. There's no internet. Like the internet didn't exist or maybe it did, but it was just for like, you know, like, defense contractors, but like it didn't exist in the world. So we pull into this little tiny, teeny tiny uh, uh, strip mall in Gainesville, Florida. And the entire strip mall was like about the size of the office you're sitting in right now. But in the corner, there was this tiny little black and white TV. And then Governor Bill Clinton, brown head of hair still, giving this impassioned talk at the National Governors Association about this idea of community service in exchange for college tuition make the world a better place while you're improving your life. And it was like, boom, right? A lightning bolt. Like I walked into that office, like governor who from where 
Arkansas, like not a chance in hell. <laughs> George H.W. Bush had just won Desert Storm. He had like a 91% approval rating. Everybody was like, oh, we'll just send like a sacrificial lamb in for the Democratic ticket because clearly Bush is going to win again. And then Bill Clinton comes out of nowhere mm-hmm. and he has this idea and he talks about it. And I was like, yes, that makes so much sense. That needs to happen. And it was, I would say, I didn't realize it, I didn't realize it until like 20 years later, but looking back on it, that was the moment where my mindset went from how can I help to what needs to happen. Like the way you solve problems isn't asking people, how can I help? You Mm. ask them what needs to happen and then you find the solution you can offer within what they need, as opposed to making it an ego play about like, how can I help? Tell me what I can do, make me the center of attention. And that's actually what I ended up giving my TEDx talk about, which then launched the part of the career that I'm in right now. So yeah, like it's funny how we think everything that's happening right now is the new normal, but like, I think we have no idea that there are little bits of data that are being filed into our brain that will become lessons that will alchemize years from now and we don't even realize it yet we're just like gathering right now we're gathering you just you're planting all these seeds and you don't know what's going to come up and it's like maybe you're growing a pot plant or maybe you're growing a rose garden or maybe you're growing eggplants or like who the hell knows but i think that's really interesting that we we are living in a world right now where everyone's like well you know are you making money from your hobby and are you maximizing this and are you you know are you are you making everything as much as it can possibly count the truth is sometimes you're just gathering seeds. Mm-hmm. So I gathered a lot of seeds. And yeah, I, I, so I thought I was going to run for office. I thought I was going to, you know, graduate from law school, become a, you know, district attorney, put away the bad guys, like make my reputation, get recruited <laughs> to run for office, win, of course, like in my fantasy, of course, I was going to win. Of course. And yeah, I mean, like it was going to be a landslide, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Who the hell knows, right? Like the odds of that are so slim. But in my fantasy imagination, that's what I thought was going to happen. And then I, you know, I, I, I would, you know, run for Congress and I'd run for Senate. And I never, interestingly enough, never actually thought beyond that because at the time, the only woman I'd ever seen to run for office that was higher than Senator was Geraldine Ferraro for vice president. So like, I just, Mm. I just, I didn't, I didn't think ladies could be president, I guess, when I was 12, (laughs) creating this life plan for me. So yeah, we still have to work on that by the way, but so that's a that's a diner talk for another day. <laughs> I agree uh, on both of those fronts, actually, that yes, we need to work on it. And yes, that is indeed a whole nother diner talk, but a worthwhile one. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, that's my, you know, another hungry man breakfast. Yeah. Yes. I mean, like, I, I, I yes. wrote a lot of plans in pen without realizing that I should have been writing them in pencil. And mm-hmm. yeah. But sometimes we need to write plans in pen because that's what gives us the courage to move. Yes, right? if that's we think that we write true. everything right if we write everything in pencil then we're kind of like mm, well, I don't know right like we kind of sit there yes and, but at the same time on the other end of the spectrum I, I love that you acknowledge this the, the hustle culture right that no one's we're, where are we hustling to right? right like it's not like we're running down the first baseline we got a goal to get to a lot of us are just like I gotta do everything I gotta. it's like where do you want to go right. where is this train that you're talking about like yeah it's right it so you end up exhausted but not fulfilled Right. Yes. 100%. But on that, on you know, I love that idea of like you have to have your. Sometimes you need to write your plans that in pen to give you the courage. I think it's like the difference between motivation and um, discipline, or motivation and accountability. Mm. Like 
you and I live in a world of a lot of motivational speakers. I describe myself as a motivational, you know, keynote speaker. But I think motivation's bullshit. I think it's nonsense. <laughs> I really do because, like, yeah. to say like it's it, like it, when somebody's motivated, it means that every single day they wake up and have to remotivate themselves every single day. And I just I don't have that kind of fortitude. I just don't. Like I mentioned earlier, I'm I'm gonna run my fourth marathon on Monday, but I run charity marathons first because I'm old and slow. But second, because if I have all these people who have donated to me, I have to keep getting up and running because they're paying attention and they're watching. And like, I'll break a promise to myself every single day of the week. I'm like, I'm 100%. tired. My foot hurts. I don't know. But I won't break a promise to somebody else ever. Right. Yeah. So like, I don't like motivation doesn't work for me, but like accountability accountability is everything. I don't know, like, what do you think about that? Cause you know, you and I live in the same space here. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, I, I think, I think motivation plants the seed, but yeah. after that, sometimes our business is a little lonely, right? Cause we're not, cause we're not there to, you know, we'll get some water on it and get some sun, right? That's accountability. Yeah. Accountability is that next piece, but motivation, yeah. I think, I think motivation, if done right, puts the seed in some good soil. And it gives it the opportunity, but still yeah, that's, that's it, but that's it. Right. Um, and so I think it matters, but it's, it's not the, it's for, I mean, <laughs> to discount our work even further, it's the easy part of the job. Um, yeah. Right? I feel and like so, motivation, yeah. <laughs> like I, I think motivation is very good for um, inspiring people to create dreams that are truly worthy of them. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I, I think, I think, it helps people to dream bigger, to see what's possible, to think that there could be more for them. Yeah. But to actually get there, they need discipline and accountability. Yes, 100%. Yeah. I mean, the cheesy way that I put it is that as as a professional speaker, I make people pause. Hmm. And just pause for a second, right? Because if you, if you never pause and you're on the hamster wheel, right? But what if you stopped? Yeah. And looked around and be like, do I want to be here? Right. But like we have to, you know, it's easier to turn a ship if it is stopped than if it's in motion. Um, And so if we can get people to stop or slow down for a second and look around and be like, oh, maybe my language is impacting other people that are in a way that I didn't realize it. Maybe I am prescribing to a hustle culture that's not helping me. Maybe I am enough. Whatever, like those kinds of things. Now I'm like, that's the way, uh, the the cheesy way that I've come up to talk about it. But I agree with you. Now, I think that's why uh, I love coaching. I'm, I'm assuming it's one of the reasons why you love coaching as well is because that's where it swings in and you actually get to be a part of that process of, of change. You act, yes. you get individuals to realize, you know, what, what kind of water do you want? What kind of sunlight do you want? Like, you know, and, then, yes. and actually get things to change. Um, but that is, uh, but yeah, that, that's how I normally think, typically think about it. And uh, and I'm wondering for you, as you know, as we kind of talk a little bit about coaching, uh, is there, have you noticed certain patterns that a lot of your clients are in? And are they in repeat patterns where you're kind of like, okay, person who is CEO of, uh, uh, of whatever health, health insurance company. And now I got a CEO of a, of a, of a hedge fund. I got a, a, a CFO of a blank, but they're completely different entities, but yet the same patterns emerged. Have you noticed a lot of patterns with the high performing clients you work with? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have noticed that, um, I, I, let's see a handful. Uh, I've noticed that they are generally very good at driving performance in their businesses Mm -hmm. and they 
are not very good at driving performance at home, right? So <laughs> they know how to be the CEO at, at, at work and either they come home as the CEO, which doesn't work in their house, or they come home <laughs> and they just don't know what to do because they're not, they don't have any power. Yeah. So trying to figure out how to like meld their two selves together is something. Um, so like they want to have as fulfilling as a home life as the success. Like I find a lot of, especially male um, CEOs, find themselves uh, bearing themselves into work because that's the place where they feel like they have power, they have control, control they, they, yeah. they, 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 um, they, they get the recognition, right? Like all of that, some women also, but like that tends to be more of a, of, of a male CEO problem that I see with some of my clients. Um, uh, for the women, obviously there's a lot of imposter syndrome and a lot of, you know, lack of confidence and concern about like how they're coming off and are they too powerful or they're not powerful enough? Like how do they walk that balance for both? I tend, and again, men have that also. Right. But like, that's, I, I, if I were to gender it, that's sort of where I see a lot of that for both. I would say one of the things that I see is just an inability to stop getting pulled into the noise just getting pulled into like uh, they're trying to do deep work and they're trying to focus, but they're also like still solving like little problems that are mm. distracting to them and are, are irrelevant. And so teaching them to create boundaries and to, and to let their people fly and sometimes fail a little, right. And figuring out when the yeah. right time is to do that. Um, I, I think I see that with both. And then I'd say the fourth thing that I see is, uh, sort of the, the correct titration of their executive presence. So when do they come on strong? When do they try to be softer? How, when do they become the helper? When do they become the cheerleader? Just sort of figuring out how to bring the, the, the spotlight to others sometimes and when to keep it for themselves, but sort of the, the whole big bucket of executive presence. Yeah. I say those are probably the four biggest themes that I'm seeing right now. First off, shout out to you, Laura, for busting out the word titration. I haven't heard that since my organic chemistry class, sophomore year of college. I use that uh, word all the word. time, almost every great day. Word. <laughs> I love that word. It's a strong word choice. Um, <laughs> you brought up this powerful word, which is control. Mm -hmm. uh, and control is is fascinating. Um, you know, I know for me, I, I actually never drank. Uh, we, had, we had different. We grew up a little different. I, I never I never dropped uh, drank a drop of alcohol until I was in uh, really my early 30s. Mm. Right. And like the first five drinks that I had were best man speeches that I gave at weddings. And I was like, I think I'm supposed to drink this. Otherwise, it's bad luck. Right. Like and so it's not like it turned me into a lush. It was like, oh, I'm supposed to do this or I don't want to look weird or like throw it over my shoulder probably hit them in the eye. Um, but still right and so uh, but uh but you know th there are a number of reasons historically why i didn't do that alcoholism does run in my family um yeah. and there is a gene for it and, and yes. so i was like i don't know if i have it or not I'm not trying to find out um, no if and, i had alcoholism in my family i would i drink milk at parties i would yeah. just <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds like a very healthy decision. Yeah. And so and there's other reasons, right? You know, I mean, I told myself I like being the person that anybody can call if they needed anything. Right. So yeah. I did a lot of DD work and I loved it mm -hmm. because A, I knew my friends were OK. B, I used to get to I used to get to drive their nicer cars than mine. Um, nice. And so and so now, but ultimately, 
you know, as I did more self-work, a lot of it came down to control um, mm -hmm. and just wanting to be in control. Control is a fascinating word. And what is your relationship with the word control? Because you brought it up here a little bit earlier as well, that you, now uh, you're someone who likes things the way you like things and you want it to, you know, you want A to B to C and that's, you, you enjoy when that happens. Yeah, I have, um, I have no small amount of control freakiness in me. I, uh, I, I like to sit in the aisle seat of every airplane, not um, because I think we're going to like, not because I think I'm going to survive like the fiery ball of death that is a crash, but I just like the illusion of control. Like I, I, I'm such a control figure. I need the illusion of control. We have, um, we have a very specific organization system in our kitchen and a very specific organization system in our refrigerator. Like there's like the upper quartile is like where left quartile is where the, um, the leftovers <laughs> go. The upper right quartile is where we have like the pre-cut, you know, berries and, 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 and veggies. Like the bottom is where the, it's like, it's, it is, it is a whole system. What age and did your children learn the word quartile? Um <laughs> <laughs> Probably right after they learn the word titrate. <laughs> um, so yeah, I gave a speech once and, and a woman came up to me afterwards. She's like, you use a lot of big words, but I like it. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I, love, like, I'm, I am here for it. I'm drinking okay. the Kool-Aid. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I am such a control freak that I even like yeah. the precision of language, right? Mm -hmm. Like I like, I like there, there, there are so many words in the English language that there is one that is right for a moment and there are a lot that are almost right for that moment. And there's something about the, um, the emotion that comes out of somebody when they hear exactly the word that is describing their feeling. It's like they feel seen for the very yes. first time. And it is a, it is a beautiful, beautiful moment. Uh, so yeah, I, I am... I am a control freak. I own that. Um, it is, uh, I think it's okay because I don't let my control freakiness make other people crazy, but I also understand how to communicate about it. So their lack of it doesn't make me crazy. Okay. That's good. That's good self-awareness. <laughs> yeah. 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 I love that. So uh, control is a fascinating word. And, and I love that you talked about it, that you often notice that pa that pattern within men that you work with um, and that you notice in women, that women are battling more of a imposter syndrome. Um, am I enough uh, kind of things? Am I the right person for the job, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's this little thing out there. I think you've heard of it. It's called privilege. And, uh, and so it is, it's fascinating to hear about men uh, who have, who are control freaks and who want everything to be a specific way. And then we also talk about privilege because ultimately sometimes what happens is that a woman will speak up or a woman identifying individual will speak up and they will be saying something in an assertive way, but because of the control freak nature of a male, um, they will have become uncomfortable by it. Mm -hmm. And whenever someone becomes uncomfortable, they want to try to change or modify another person's behavior because it's easier to point out something from someone else as opposed to recognize why am I uncomfortable in this moment right now? Um, and so privilege is fascinating because privilege is just the ability to not have to worry about things when you're in certain situations. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Uh, uh, 
so as you work with men with some of these controlling behaviors, do you find yourself ever talking about privilege? Because I know you are someone who also is very passionate about social justice as well. And I'm wondering if that comes up in any of those conversations, even though that's not what, at all what they hired you for. But as you mentioned, they bring it home. And, and not to stereotype that these people are all in heterosexual relationships, but still, I think you see the direction I'm going in here. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we should preface this by saying that the people that I'm coaching have researched me and referenced me and chosen to hire me mm -hmm. after seeing me online, hearing what I talk about, understanding my social justice bent, understanding the fact that I'm going to call it like I see it. So I, it, it, it may be that the way that I do it is brilliant, but I'm thinking it's more likely that the clients I have have self-selected that they're willing to hear what I have to say um, and that they're ready for that. So it's hard for me. It's hard for me to, to make a comment about like gen pop, because I would imagine that there are a lot of male identifying or even female identifying and everything else who think that I'm, you know, obnoxious and that I scold people in all sorts of, you know, terms. Uh, I, I have a, I have a dear friend who said to me just the other day is like, I, I love you as a human and I love texting with you all day long. And I love you in person. He goes, but I have a hard time being friends with you on social media. You scolded me the other day about international women's day that like not enough men were, you know, posting and doing enough. And he's like, you have no idea what I was doing behind the scenes. And I was like, uh, why do you feel the need to be congratulated for what you were doing? Like the fact that I was pointing out that not enough men are working hard to open up enough doors for enough women had nothing to do with you. But the fact that you decided to make it about you and the fact that I wasn't praising you in my posts, like upset you in some way, I think that's a you issue actually. And I think mm -hmm. you need to think about that. Hashtag so, not all men, right? That whole issue. Well, uh, it was, it was, Me Too movement. it was specifically for that day that not oh, okay. all men and, yeah. and, and I posted something where I was like, well, not all men, you know, do all these things, but not all men also are like, your silence, like, I'm not going to go as far as say silence is complicity about everything, but your silence is certainly not helpful. And I think that there are, I think people are so worried about pissing somebody off. Like the other day I posted, um, the other day I posted about um, this, this, this young van life woman, um, Gabby uh, Petito, who disappeared. Um, and this was before she was found dead, but, but when she disappeared and I, posted something like, as outraged as I am about her disappearance, I'm even more outraged that the only reason every single one of us know her name is because she's beautiful, she's blonde, she's white, she's blue-eyed, she's skinny, and she, you know, like, uh, like yes. that to me is even more offensive, right? Like, I'm so, like, I'm horrified by all of it, and mm -hmm. not to, you know, take anything away from the tragedy that was her death, but I was like, the, the bigger tragedy is that there are thousands of people who disappear every week, whose names we don't know because they're black, because they're trans, because they're overweight, because they're gay, because they're old, because they're whatever, and they don't fit into this, you know, idea. And as soon as I posted it, uh, as soon as I tweeted about it, another fellow speaker in our world texted me and he said, oh, you're going to lose some business for being so controversial. <laughs> and I like thought about it and I almost took it down. And then I went to Facebook and I post, I like posted a picture of my tweet and I was like, I was just told that I'm going to lose business. And you know what? I might. And that's just going to have to be okay Yeah. because I have all of this privilege. And if I don't use it, 
to call attention for people who do not have it, then I'm an asshole. Like mm -hmm. plain and simple. Like that's it. I just I, there's I don't I, I'm not saying that everybody has to get on their high horse and 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 preach about things that they care about, but. I have enough privilege that I could lose some business and be just fine. If you're not somebody who could lose some business and be just fine, then play it safe. Yep. But for me, I I just, I don't know that I could go to bed at night knowing that I prioritized my own personal profits when I already have enough, right? We're talking about how much is enough. I guess how much is enough is I can lose some and be just fine. Maybe yep. that's enough to bring this back to what we were talking about before. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. I remember, uh, I definitely, I had an, I had an uncle, uh, who pulled me aside and was just like, Hey James, you know, I think you need to be a little more, uh, you need to scrutinize, you know, what you post a little bit more just because, you know, you're, you're building a business, you're building a yeah. thing. And I was like, listen, if you ain't down to get down, then we're not, I don't need your money. Right. Yeah. I, don't, I don't, I don't want it. Um, right. Like if, and, if my black yeah. lives matter behind me, that if that offends you, then, right. you, <laughs> then yeah. my guests are going to piss you off. So. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, 100%. Uh, and so, uh, yeah. And that's, I mean, that's why, but it's interesting also in that vein is that I, social justice is a part of every speech that I give, but I don't advertise that. Yeah, because it's a little bit of give them what they want, tell them what they need. Um, I mean, for me, situation. they look at my bio and they're like, she's clearly a political person. So like they know what they're getting. Like the NRA is never <laughs> going to have me go speak at their annual conference. Right. Like, it's, right, yeah. And that's OK. I, Rox, would I bet all they want pay to. well. I bet they right. pay well. I bet um, they but... do pay well. <laughs> <laughs> disappointingly well where does yes. that money come from anyway so um with <laughs> i also think that it is uh we would be remiss not to talk a little bit about imposter syndrome because you mentioned that it is something that comes up with a lot of your uh, coaching clients and it is something yeah. that affects so many individuals who don't believe that they have whatever magic they're supposed to have to be in the rooms that they occupy. Um, and that's a lie, right? We know that from individuals. Um, it, just because you don't bring everything into the room doesn't mean you don't bring anything. And so when it comes to imposter syndrome, how do we rewrite that story? What are some ways that you try to help individuals rewrite that lie that they're telling themselves? Well, so I tell them that it's not a lie. It's not a lie that you right. don't have everything you need to be in that room. You don't. You don't right. have everything you need to be in the room. Right. But the actual truth is neither does anybody else. <laughs> everybody else is making it up as they go along too. Like there is nobody. And I spent, look at, I spent 20 years doing executive search mm -hmm. for the biggest organizations in, in the world, like finding CEOs for the biggest organizations in the world. And the big giant secret is that nobody walks on water. There are no perfect candidates, yeah. right? So nobody has everything you need to walk in the room. Now, women will only apply for jobs if they are competent, if they've already done it, if they've already walked the walk, if they already can prove that they can do the job because they've already done the job. Men will often apply for jobs because they're confident. They see what's there. They see what is possible. And they're like, yeah, I could probably do that. So when you're already starting with like, I need to be competent before I walk in the door. And then you have other people who are like, I'm confident enough to be here. I'll figure it out when I get here. You already like, you're already feeling behind. Then there's this like, then there's this, 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 um, this, uh, pluralistic uh, imposter syndrome that we have. We're like, if I'm in the room and I'm overcompensating by being super confident, mm -hmm. then you're like, oh, well, she's so confident. I must not belong here. So you then try to like make up for being 
uh, an imposter by being even more confident. I'm like, oh God, James is so confident. I should be really confident. So neither one of us are telling us the other one has no idea what they're doing. And we have this pluralistic uh, imposter syndrome. But here's the thing. And there's this great article by two women whose names I can't remember off the top of my head right now. They wrote it in Harvard Business Review. And the point of the article was, all of the systems in the world, and we're talking about social justice issues here, all the systems in the world were created by wealthy white men, wealthy straight cisgender white men, right? So if you walk in the room and nobody looks like you, if you walk in the room and it's not uh, created for your voice, for your cadence, for your personality, it's because that system wasn't created for someone who looks like you, who sounds like you, who thinks like you, who loves Mm -hmm. like you, who prays like you. That doesn't make you an imposter. It makes the system crap. Like mm-hmm. we have to fix the systems. And so this article, which is fantastic, and I'll, I'll send it to you after if you want to link Please. to it, uh, it, it basically says you are not an imposter. You've just reached a point that nobody ever expected you to be, which is kind of amazing, right? Mm-hmm. Like it tells you like every time I feel imposter syndrome, I'm like, I don't know if I belong here. I think to myself, hell yeah, LGO, you're in a room that you never thought you'd be in. Like you've just leveled up to the next level. And every time you get to the next level, and Seth Godin talks about this also, he's like, everybody who's clinging on to the top rung has never been there before. And they're all looking around, hoping nobody else figures them out. (laughs) None of us have been. So every time you achieve something else, I mean, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, like all these people that were like, oh my God, the cult of billionaires, they're amazing. Well, every time they earn more money, they're like, I've never had this much money before. What am I going to do? Like every single one of us, every time we strive and we grow and we innovate and we iterate and we change are somewhere we've never been before. And so I think what we need to do is we need to not try to quiet that voice. That's the voice that's saying, you might embarrass yourself, you might Mm. fail, you might totally screw up. And if we let that voice instead of being the critic, the governor that stops us from moving faster and moving forward and allow it to be our cheerleader, that's like, you might fail, but amazing. You might learn something. You've never been here before. This is so cool. Like, this is something you never thought would happen. Awesome. Good for you for getting here. Then all of a sudden you have a cheering section and that's way better than having a, a governor or having a, you know, mm-hmm. a, but a, 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 you know, like the, the critics. Uh, so I think, I think trying to, like, you can't silence the voice. The voice has evolutionarily been put in you right. to stop you from doing something stupid. So if we <laughs> let the voice talk and say, you might fail and go, cool, that's awesome. I survived failure before I've survived all of my failures up until this point. I bet I could survive this one too. And all those failures PS have taught me something that have landed me at a different or a better or a more interesting place. And that'll happen this time too. Then suddenly we're not trying to quiet the voice. We're actually using it as momentum and energy and power. So yeah, that's my thinking about imposter syndrome. I actually welcome it. I think it's awesome. I think it tells you that you've, you know, gotten somewhere. Yeah. What a powerful uh, switch flip of, of a script flip of, of like, no, this is, this is a good thing. This is telling yes. you that, that you've never been here before. This is incredible. Look around. This is special. You made it. And you're so special proud. for making it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you said a word that people have a lot of interesting relationships with. And I, I want to bring it back to you. We've been talking about other people, but I want to try to bring it back to you with this question. Now, you talked about confidence mm. and confidence is uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting word, right? It's, it's beautiful. I love the idea of it. 
don't always have it, right? I would say my my relationship my relationship with confidence I would describe as inconsistent or complicated, right? <laughs> I once heard someone say that they're in a long distance relationship with the word confidence, um, <laughs> and so uh, so my wife told me that story. It was great, um, but I'm wondering. You know, as I listen to you speak, as you the way that you carry yourself on on social media, obviously you have this resume that uh, to anybody who just looks at it, they're like, "Holy shit!" Um, right? You're hanging out with the Clintons. We're 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 selling startups. We're doing a real some amazing things. Opening up Montessori schools. It's incredible, and the way that you are articulate, it spews confidence, and that's the way that my perception of you is. I'm wondering, what is your perception of yourself and your relationship with the word confidence? Yeah. So when I was 13 years old, I went to computer sleepaway camp, <clears throat> like for real, like we, it was a sleepaway camp where you like program computers. Um, it was, it was uh, an Atari computer sleepaway camp because that's, that's just how old I am. Incredible. And we learned how to program basic and COBOL and a little bit of Fortran, baby. So <laughs> I am... I am, I, and um, I was one of like three girls in the entire camp uh, and still didn't kiss a boy till I went to college. And um, yeah, I'm still that girl. I'm still that total like computer nerd girl who uh, is a raging introvert who like walks into a party and cannot wait to leave. I um, wear very, you know, nice designer clothes on stage as like body armor. And I, uh, it is crazy that I'm in this job that I'm in. I'd much rather have like an hour long diner talk with somebody than like work a room. That just makes me want to hurl. So yeah, I think it's interesting. My relationship with confidence is that I, I think we, I like that. I have a long distance relationship with confidence. I feel like mine is like, it's complicated. There are some things in which I'm very confident. Absolutely. Um, And, and a lot of that has come, interestingly enough, in my 40s. I call them the fuck you 40s. Like, this is pretty much who I am at this point. I'm like, I might get a little better on that 10%. I might get a little worse on that 10%. But basically, it's like, I'm pretty much me at this yeah. 50 now, right? Like, you don't like me? Eh, fuck you, right? Like, I'm sure there are things I can do better. I'm sure there are things I can do worse. But I am, I'm done trying to shoehorn myself into everybody else's idea of what is the right pant size or the right volume of my voice or the right social media posts or any of that. Like, I just, I don't, I don't want an, uh, I don't want millions of fans. I want like an army of a thousand who are just, who love me. And that's all I need. That's all Mm -hmm. I need to, 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 to make the world a better place. So I'm not confident, uh, in everything I do, but I do to go back to the competence, confidence yeah. uh, thing. We've mentioned the marathon a couple of times. I ran my first mile like of my life right before I turned 39, like of wow. my life. I had wow. never been, <laughs> never been athletic, never, ever any, I had like 7,000 excuses to get out of PE when I was in, what is it? When I was in school, my PE teacher's like, how do you have your period every week? Like, I was just like, sorry, got it again. Yes, I did, you know, play four square. And, um, but, but I, 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 I ran my first mile at the end of the mile. I said, oh my God, like it took me six weeks to run the mile without like needing to like lean over and puke and literally. And at the end of the mile, I was like, well, if I string three of those together, I could run a 5k. 
So I signed up for a 5K and six weeks later, I did a 5K. And I say did not run because like men and like double jogger strollers were passing me on the uphills. Like it was, <laughs> if I could have like stuck my arm out and clotheslined them, I would have, but I didn't yeah. see them coming because I was so busy trying not to die. So I did a 5K. <laughs> At the end of the 5K, I was like, you know, what if I string two of those together? I could do a 10K. So a couple months later, I did a 10K. And then I was like all hopped up on endorphins. So I was like, you know, if I string two of those together plus another mile, I, I could do a half marathon. So I started training for a half marathon. And as you mentioned, I live in Boston, mm -hmm. marathon town. Yeah. So one thing led to another. And the next thing you know, I'm training for the Boston marathon. Now, if I had woken up the first day of that boot camp where I went to like do exercise and try to run that one mile, I never would have said, I'm good. I'm confident I'm going to run a marathon. But because I showed myself over and over the competence that I could do the step before the step I wanted it gave me the confidence to say, I can do the next thing. Like the women who are applying for jobs who are like, I don't, I'm not competent enough for it. I haven't done it yet. If they've done the step before, they could do the thing the guy saying, go, well, I can string all these things together and one plus one plus one equals three. So I have confidence that I could get to three because I've done one and one and one. So I, my relationship to confidence is that I don't, I don't trade in confidence that much. I mm. really work on competence not of the thing that I want to do, but of the steps that lead up to the thing that I want to do. And I trust like, you know, every Olympic gold medalist will tell you, like get out there, their very first Olympic race. And yeah. they're like, what are you thinking about? They're like, nothing. I just trust the process. Like you trust the training, you trust the process. And mm. I think if you can be competent in the process, then you can be confident in the goal. Mm. And in the moment. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And then you can enjoy the ride, right? Like the, I mean, I, I, I had this marathon on Monday. I have to run 26.2 miles. I've only run 20 miles in training. You don't run 26.2 miles in, in marathon training. You run 20. Right. When you run a 13.1 half marathon, you run 10 miles in training. You never run 13.1, but on marathon Monday, I'm going to get up and I'm going to get to 20 miles and I'm going to be like, I wonder what happens now. <laughs> Am I going to make it? Is it going to happen? I don't really know. I haven't done this before. And I always say like, there's like two, there's like the angel and the devil on your shoulders. And one's like, you're going to die. This is the worst thing you've ever done. What are you thinking? And the other one's right. like, you're going to do it. You're going to be a marathoner. It's amazing. And you have to make that choice. Like only one of those voices gets to win and you have to make that choice. So like mm -hmm. which one wins Right. That just comes down to like, do you or do you have accountability? Do you have discipline? What was the motivation to get going in the first place? So I just I don't know. I I I think I think having I think confidence is a really terrible goal because you can never have confidence because then you're not continuing to grow and striving and putting that next weird, crazy, kooky. Maybe it's the big promotion. Maybe it's the farmhouse where you build your own energy and grow your own food like you're not. You're not evolving if you're not scared a little bit about the goal that's in front of you. But you, how could you be confident about a goal you've never achieved? You can be confident about your training and about the process and feel good about that. But yeah, I don't know. I think confidence, it's what I tell my executive coaching clients. I'm like, I'm not going to make you confident. I'm not going to give you confidence that, you know, you know that, that, that you're going to be just fine. I'm going to help you trust that you're doing the things you need to do. So that you believe in yourself and that you know that you'll be just fine. I, sorry, I'm chewing on this. Yeah. I love this. Uh, confidence is not the goal. Yeah. That's, that is counterintuitive to what I believe 
we are taught to what social media tells us sure. and all that kind of stuff. Right. And, but counterintuitive in such a beautiful way, um, because in some ways it makes confidence seem more attainable. Um, but, but at, because since it's not the goal, then I can just be okay with the moments that I am confident, right? For example, when I'm on stage, right? People come up to me like, James, how do you, how do you, how are you so confident? I'm like, you just literally saw me at my most confident. You just witnessed the peak of me feeling good about myself. Um, yeah. and, and, and now I'm going to go back yeah. to my hotel room, climb into the bed in fetal position and think about the three words I said wrong yeah, exactly. and, and, and shake myself to sleep. Basically. Like that's, what that, that's, that's what the other side of this looks like. Yeah. 100%, 100%. Yeah. And so, uh, yes, what you shared about it is, incredibly powerful. And I like that idea of, you know, get yourself competent so that you can achieve confidence if confidence is something that you're interested in. But, right, but the really important, like, there. you don't have to be competent in the thing you want to do because you haven't done it yet. Right. So like waiting to be competent. Like, I think we, I think we're not confident because we're waiting to be competent. Mm. And I think we have to just be competent in the training. We have to be competent in what's leading up to it. Right. So like, I don't know how Monday is going to go, but I know this week I can be competent in eating cleanly, in resting, in hydration, all the things that I need to do so that I wake up on Marathon Monday and I'm like, it's going to go as well as it can go. Yeah. Awesome. That's great. But I think people who are confident just because they're confident, the emperor has no clothes. Like a lot of those people are just blowhards, right? They're just, they're, we, we assign confidence to the loudest person in the room. Yes. When really they're probably the most insecure it's the ones who are the quietest, who often are the most confident. So I think we just, we have confidence. We've just, we've gotten it so wrong. And I, and so I just, rather than helping people get it right, I just want to take it off the table. Yeah. Yeah. I'm there with you on that one. Uh, I'm there with you for sure on that idea. And I, it is fascinating to see the way that, uh, like you said, like the loudest person in the room is just that they are the loudest person in the room. They are nothing more than that, but yeah. how we assign who must be the most confident is fascinating. And something yes. that also isn't doing those people any level of service either. Um, right. And, and so what if we all just dropped our shoulders and we're like, you know what, let's just show up. Um, yeah. but that's way easier said than done. Cause turns out, you know, insecurities are real, but still, yes. <laughs> but still they, the pursuit of owning those insecurities, recognizing them and developing a more positive relationship with them. Note, not just getting rid of them, but developing a positive relationship with your insecurities. That is a goal that is attainable um, and allows you to show up as you are in more spaces and lets your competence shine through. Um, yes. But yes. And so I, I love the way that you put that. It's not about um, uh, the actual achievement of competence. It's about the steps towards it that you do competently that sets you up. So that day, that moment, that meeting, that speech, that race, that whatever, it's like, well, I did everything I could. So let's see how it goes. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, the thing itself put. is just the victory lap. Mm-hmm. That's it. Like yes. the thing itself is the victory lap. Everything else is that's the work actually. Ha like, like I saw, I, I saw uh, an interview with, with some summer Olympian who said something like, uh, yeah, uh, the, the, the journalist was like, wow, you earned a lot of medals today. And he was like, no, I earned the medals over the course of the last year. I just collected them today. 
And I was like, yes, that's perfect. <laughs> Boop. Perfect. Yep. <laughs> yep. I earned, I, I, I earned the medals in training. I picked them up today. Yeah. yeah. I picked and them I was up. like, that's, I love that. <laughs> I love that. Like that's exactly it. Yep. So I love it. LGO, it has been so fun getting to hang out with you. Uh, it, just the, the the wisdom truth bombs that you dropped on it. I loved hearing about uh, about who you were when you were younger, a little bit about your family, and a little bit uh, or a whole lot of it about your journey of how you got here today. Um, thank you for just being an incredible human being um, and and being you. Uh, not that you know how to be anybody else. That <laughs> would don't. be contradictory to everything we talked about today. But still, <laughs> uh, I just uh, I just really appreciate you. Um, and I hope that, uh, I hope that maybe we'll get you back here in the diner again. And it's been so special getting to hang out with you. Um, and thank you for the greatness, um, and the thoughts that you put in this world that cause us all to, to take a beat and think about what am I doing? Uh, what does worthiness mean in my life? What does confidence mean in my life? What does enough mean in my life? Uh, I just, I appreciate you LGO. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. All right, y'all. That was my time with the wonderful LGO, incredible human being. Dropped some amazing books on you, limitless, mission driven. Make sure that you check those out. Also, follow her on Instagram. Hey, LGO, she is worth your time. And if you can also try to get in, if you have the opportunities, I'm not sure where you are in life. I don't know how she's accepting clients in the coaching realm, but I know I got a little bit of a coaching session from LGO. It was about seven minutes, and it caused me to think differently. That's the power of someone who asks really powerful questions and does it in the way that she does. I'm really grateful that she is someone who I'm connected with. And I'm really grateful that you are now also someone who is in that circle as well. Thank you so much for coming to the diner. And the next time we hang out, y'all, until then, keep punching small talk in the face by asking better questions. You all take care. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Diner Talks with James. It was so much fun getting to hang out with you and finish our milkshakes in that squeaky red leather booth. <laughs> if you do me a favor and smash that subscribe button, that would be dope. And also, if you could leave a review on iTunes, well, come on now, you're going to make me blush. <laughs> also, if you want to be a part of the action, we record these live on YouTube Live every Wednesday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go to YouTube and type in James T. Robo and smash that red subscribe button so you know when we go live next. Also, while we're on the subject, I'm James T. Robo all over the internet. I post meaningful content on Instagram, witty content on Twitter. Let's get connected in some other places, folks. And as always, if you're interested in learning more about the guest tonight, please check out the show notes. My friends, until next time, keep punching small talk in the face by asking better questions. Y'all take care.